You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. I want to tell you about a recent visit I made to New York City. I stopped at the J.P. Morgan Library where I was doing some archival research, and I'd never been there before. I'd heard about J.P. Morgan's personal library, which was really a storage facility for his rare books and his art collection. Now, I grew up outside of New York City, not far over the river in New Jersey, and I'm a bibliophile, so I feel like I should have been there long before I have been. And when I stepped into the library, I was absolutely blown away. The sumptuous wood-lined walls and bookcases were like wallpapered with spines of leather-bound texts and encased in these glass doors or metal fencing. The library stretched up three cases high with ladders that seemed like they were straight out of Hogwarts Castle. That was the only way you could access these top shelves. And for the ultimate luxury, you have to imagine the immense fireplace alight with a roaring inferno adjacent to a plush velvet upholstered chair where you might sink deep into comfort while immersed in the world of a book. Now, you might get the impression that libraries are one of my favorite places in the world, and you'd be right. J.P. Morgan's library is exactly what I dream of when I dream of my personal library. Now, if I can just get my hands on a billion dollars, it could all be mine. Gilded Age libraries were not just for the rich and famous, though. The era saw a proliferation of obscenely beautiful libraries like the Lenox Library or the New York Public Library or even the Library of Congress Jefferson Building, which we've talked about before. All of them opened their doors in the Gilded Age. These are works of art, and they owe much to the broader renaissance in architecture and the rise of the Beaux-Arts style in America. So how did this revolution take place? Who's responsible? And what is Beaux-Arts design? To explain the world of 19th and early 20th century art, I'm joined by Philip James Dodd, a practitioner and one of the foremost residential architects of our time, who has just written a luxurious book. This is, in fact, his third. It's called An American Renaissance, Beaux-Arts Architecture in New York City. Philip hails from Bury, outside of Manchester, although I mistook his accent as Yorkshire, much to my embarrassment. He's been working in the United States for decades, and he's earned a master's degree from Notre Dame before opening his own architecture firm. Philip's work has helped to inform Julian Fellows' television show, The Gilded Age, and Fellows has even written a foreword to Philip's latest book. I'm so pleased to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining me, Philip. Thank you for having me. 
Well, this book is interesting for so many reasons. It throws up a dozen questions, at least about history, politics, economics. Many of us will have heard, I think, about the Beaux-Arts School of Architects, right? Um, and I should, I should probably also add landscape artists into that mix as well. I think probably because we see it on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., it's, you know, a big feature of, of the National Mall. But I was wondering if you could just take a moment and define for us what the Beaux-Arts style is. And I know that's not entirely easy, but you're probably the best place person to tell us, you know, what the Beaux-Arts style is. Okay, so this is, I'll try and give you the condensed version of this. Um, so it all stems from the, uh, the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, which was a famous architecture school in, in Paris. And so this is a time in, in the Gilded Age era where there are, no, there are no architecture schools in America. And there's really no professional architects. Uh, they're all kind of gentlemen who are kind of, you know, just hobbies for them. And so America's first real uh, architect is, is Richard Morris Hunt. Uh, we all know him for being the architect of the Breakers and, and um, Marble House up in Newport, as well as Biltmore in, in North Carolina. He's the first American to go to the Ecole. And after him, he's followed by H.H. H. Richardson from Boston, who designed Trinity Church up there. And after that is Charles McKim. And after McKim, uh, the floodgates open and almost every architect of the era goes there to learn. Uh, there's a couple of exceptions. Stanford White didn't, and uh, George Post didn't, and Daniel Burnham didn't. But they all made sure that their sons did get that education that they haven't got. And while they're at the school, they don't, they're not taught one particular style. Well, they're taught the architecture of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, of the French and Italian Renaissance. And then importantly, while they're in Europe, they travel. And while they're traveling, that's when they come across the medieval architecture that's in France and, and England, and, and in particular, the revival of medieval architecture that's getting built in, in the UK. And they come back to America and they amalgamate all of these styles together into what we call American Beaux-Arts. So it's a very wide umbrella. I think most people, when they think of grand French Beaux-Arts buildings, like, like the Paris Opera House, in New York City, they think of Grand Central Station, they think of the Metropolitan Museum, they think of all these grand civic buildings, New York Public Library. But in that same umbrella, you get buildings like the Woolworth Building, which is uh, 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 perpendicular Gothic by Cass Gilbert. You get Italian Palazzos by McKimmead and White. And so there's a, a, a variety of, of styles under this kind of broad term of American um, Beaux-Arts. And just, you know, just interestingly, it really took off. So Hunt's the first one to do it. It really takes off at the White City when they have the Columbian Exposition in, in, um, in Chicago, because the two prior world expositions had been in London where they built the Crystal Palace and in France, in Paris, where they built the Eiffel Tower. And so America was really, you know, had to produce something special. And it was this great competition between New York and uh, Chicago to see who would host it. And that's, that's actually where the term the Windy City comes from. Nothing to do with actual gusts of wind, but it was the hot air back and forth from the press, you know, when they were um, both, you know, kind of getting up, up a hand and who would win the competition. And Daniel Burnham, 
was the uh, was the master planner, but importantly, he had a lot of the New York architects, Charles McCam, George Post, and Hunt come to design the major buildings that were there at the White City. And what happens is 25% of the American population went to go and visit that because this is there's no other form of entertainment at the time. And they see this architecture for the first time and they go back to their homes and cities and they say, that's what we want. And so that's why you own almost every town and every city in the country has got a Beaux-Arts building in it, whether it be a town hall or a bank or, or a, uh, a library because of them going to see these buildings at the, in, in Chicago. It's a great story. And it's one that makes me think about the quote that you started your book with, which is from Frank Woolworth, the, um, you know, the owner of Woolworth's, the department store. Uh, and he said this, he said, I don't want a mere building. I want something that will be an ornament to the city. And I, I was thinking about the wealth of the Gilded Age, the Nouveau Riche, but there's also this obsession with aesthetics and grandeur. grandeur. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit something about, is that a major change in this period? I mean, obviously the money is there and that's a major change, but is there this uh, obsession with beauty at this period? So Woolworth is an interesting guy because he, he hires Cass Gilbert to design him as a skyscraper that was going to be the home of his, his, uh, his company. But initially he had no desire for it to be the world's tallest building. And then he's on vacation in Europe and everybody keeps on asking him about the Singer building, which at the time was the tallest building in the world. And so he realizes what a great piece of PR this is to, to, to have this building. And so he comes back and that's what he decides to, to splurge uh, and, 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 and do this. And I think that's kind of something that is, is there's a sense of one-upmanship, which exists nowadays amongst wealthy people, but it very much existed back then. One of the things I talk about when I, when I lecture is I talk about spite mansions, how people built mansions just so that they could have one that was bigger than somebody else's. Um, and that's, that they've got this wealth, and it's you know it's funny, but you know the, the TV show, the TV series, The Gilded Age, by you know uh, Julian Fellows, and Julian wrote the forward to my book, is uh, the essence of it comes down to old money versus new money, and that's you know, and that's what the era basically is. It's um, you know J.P. Morgan lived in a brownstone. He came from old money. Uh, he was taught that you don't flaunt one's wealth. But he even he gave in when he decided to have his library built, which is basically just a, a repository for his, for his collection. Um, and so they were the old money was worn down gradually because everyone was just showing off their wealth. He had so much of it. Julian writes about this in the forward. It's the first time that Americans had more money than anybody else in Europe. And it's the first time they're able to have a lifestyle like anybody else in Europe. And that's what they want to do. So, but I, I think you know one upmanship is and is is really the I, I think the the thing that drives it, a lot of the things during this era. Maybe we should call it keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with the Vanderbilts, perhaps is maybe the best way to put it. But um, I, I also was interested in Richard uh, Guy Wilson's introduction to the book um, because he calls the period that we typically call the Gilded Age the American Renaissance. It's the title of your book as well. On this show, we've actually discussed at length whether the Gilded Age is the right name for this period. And I was wondering if you think American Renaissance fits better, or at least for 
for architecture and art does American Renaissance fit better? Well, we, you know, I think we use that term in, intentionally just because, you know, if you're talking from a social history point of view, and just like the name of your podcast is the Gilded Age and then is the Progressive Era, there is no Progressive Era architecture. It's not an architectural style. Uh, people refer to Gilded Age architecture, which really bows out to architecture, but they refer to it, and it, and that's going all the way, you know, goes all the way up to Art Deco basically, so which is, you know, socially much further along than what you would consider the Gilded Age to, to, to extend to. And so calling it the American Renaissance, uh, um, you know, kind of dodges that bullet, so to speak. But they're very similar times. Um, you know, people like J.P. Morgan and Otto Kahn, uh, both bankers, they both consider themselves to be you know, incarnations of, of the of the Medici families uh, from, from Renaissance Italy. And it really is where, where the, the Medicis were, were patrons to the arts as well as bankers. And that's what they considered themselves um, to be. And just like in the Italian Renaissance, and Renaissance just translates as rebirth, that's what's going on in America. You're coming from really a, a, a country that's quite backward um, culturally. And in New York, they want to create a city which will rival Paris, London, Rome culturally. And it's now financially able to compete, but they don't have that sense of history. And so they wanted to build these grand monuments to create that sense of history. Um, so it, it really is a, you know, a renaissance of, 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 of sorts. And in, especially, I think, with Beaux-Arts, architecture is a, a fundamental component of it and, and you touched on landscape architecture a little bit but uh, a, a fundamental component of it is is uh, murals and also sculpture so it's all the allied arts combined it's not just architecture uh if that makes sense and that that's in with the, the with the american kind of renaissance the rent the term using you know the term renaissance I mean, that makes perfect sense. Um, your book also makes the case that the Beaux-Arts was nationalistic and that the artists at the time were trying to depict the spirit of the nation. And I think that's that's right and true, although I wanted you to elaborate on this a little bit. I mean, how do, so you, you mentioned statuary, okay, but also other things, other styles in the Beaux-Arts um, school expresses national identity. And 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 that's that was in New York City. It spreads spreads outside New York City to the rest of the nation. How else is it depicted? This sort of spirit of the nation. Sculpture is the number one element because what they did at the time was they referred to these sculptures as being allegorical sculptures, and so they were trying to through sculpture tell a history, if that makes sense. And so they're trying to depict, uh, um, you know, in England. Uh, we have Britannia, so they're trying to create America, so that they can have this iconography all all over the place. Um, the interesting thing with a lot of this sculpture is, and and quite honestly, and when it comes to the murals, you see this is the New World, so you see Columbus a lot, and it's kind of interesting how uh, now a lot of this iconography is kind of somewhat can you know considered to be politically incorrect and. I'll, I'll, and I'll give you one example. So right at the bottom of Manhattan uh, in Bowling Green is the U.S. Custom House, which is a, a fantastic Beaux-Arts building by uh, Cass Gilbert, big, grand French Beaux-Arts structure. And 
at the front of it are four statues, huge statues. They're probably the, collectively the biggest sculptural composition in America. And they were done by uh, Daniel Chester French, who famously did the statue of Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial in, in DC. And these four statues are called the four continents. And each one, so we have Europe, we have Asia, we have Africa, and we have America. And they're using iconography to, to uh, um, depict those four uh, uh, continents, which now you might look at it and be like, oh, you know, well, I'm not quite sure if that fits in with this woke culture nowadays. Um, but that in itself was taken from a, uh, uh, the, the Albert Memorial in London, which had similar statues, which was meant to represent the four corners of the British Empire. So they were using uh, its... They were using this, this sense of empire building and the iconography that had gone on really just a generation earlier in Victorian England and bringing that over and trying to create their own sense of empire in, in New York. And there's, of course, that, that feed through from, you know, the idea of an American Renaissance, the Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance being uh, the rebirth of classical Greek and Roman uh, art and history, and and that that's expressed too in the in the American uh, architecture, right? Yeah. So it's it, most bank buildings in America, both out bank buildings, they look like temples. Uh, they got a pediment on the front. It looks like a you know looks like a Greek temple, and it's meant to because back in in Greek antiquity, uh, temples were also treasuries. They came back with their spoils of war, and that's where they store them. So they were treasuries. And so that iconography is kind of, you know, that's what came through. And that's when, when they started to look for, for a style for, for banks, that's where that style came from. The other style that you see in for banks in America is the Italian Palazzo. So like the Federal Reserve. And again, that's direct representation to the Medici's, to the Italian bankers. And so they're, they're trying to uh, make a reference in these styles. Um, you see the Palazzo style used a lot in New York because in New York City, you wanted to make as much of the real estate value as possible. So you wanted to extend the building all the way up to the street line. And that's what Italian Palazzos do. When you walk around you know, anywhere in Italy, they come right to the street. And so um, that fit with what they were trying to do. And so that's why you see so many of them. In from a practical point of view, but also from an iconographical point, point of view, where they're trying to reference, you know, Italy and 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 the Medici. So there's there's a lot of different strands kind of going on here. And then of course you get someone like, and, and this is one of the stories I always tell, is um, uh, it all changes when when Andrew Carnegie builds his mansion, um, and up between 90th and 91st Street on Fifth Avenue, and it's a Georgian mansion surrounded by gardens. And this was noticeable because whoever lived there must have a lot of money because they're not realizing that their full property value. Because gardens, you know, who puts gardens in? Well, you put gardens in if you're really, really wealthy. That became a way of showing that you were wealthy. Just like with JP Morgan when he built his, his headquarters on the corner of Wall Street. At that point, everyone was building skyscrapers to, to, to maximize the value of the property. And instead he built what it's like a two or three story structure just to tell everybody I've got so much money, I don't need to build a skyscraper. And so that kind of reverse psychology kind of comes in a little bit. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's fascinating. The other thing that I really liked about the book was, and I'm going to get to the various properties that you cover, but the thing I really liked about the book is the things that aren't there have as much importance in this book as the things that are there. I mean, obviously, you've got a wonderful photographer who helped with the book. and um, But it, the book dwells on what didn't survive. So before we talk about the properties that do exist, let's take a moment to consider what's not around. Madison Square Garden, if anyone's ever been to Madison Square Garden today, they'll know it's not square. It's round, right? That's where the Paramount and, and Penn Station are. Um, Alba Vanderbilt's Petit Ch- uh, Chateau, Lenox Library. I mean, there's a sense in the book that New York has lost some of its heritage. I mean, is there any strange political, sorry, is there any strange um, poetic justice for those nouveau riche that sought to upend society? They've actually kind of been upended themselves by some more modern structures, like where the Petit Chateau stood is now a big glass box. I don't want to misspeak here, but the, the you know, the, the building that, change everything was when they knocked down Penn Station because that then um, brought in community activism. That's what created the preservation movement in New York. And then people say, well, that then went on and saved all these other buildings. Well, that's only partially true because what they did was they prioritized the civic buildings and went to save those first. So Grand Central was at the top of that list. Then they eventually made it way to private residences and, and commercial buildings. So the Senga building, which had one of the most iconic, uh, most recognizable silhouettes in the skyline, that was knocked down 
after the form of the preservation, but they haven't got to that point yet because they didn't appreciate commercial buildings in the same way that they appreciated um, civic buildings. So even you know when they were building, everything was temporary during this era. It wasn't unheard of for a building to be up a couple of years, knocked down, replaced by something bigger, knocked down, replaced by something even bigger. And so they never thought of these buildings as lasting. And I think they were probably, they, they especially the houses, they even less thought about those. It was, they, they, to, to them, it was, they weren't uh, particularly important. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, we look at the buildings that have been torn down and replaced by innocuous buildings, but, you know, New York's always in a state of construction. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a preservationist. Uh, so I don't get involved with that argument. But the argument that I that I use is that the Lennox Library, yes, which was by Richard Morris Hunt, was knocked down, but it was replaced with what is the Frick Collection, which is one of the best buildings in the city, which was a much better building than the Lennox Library. And so occasionally a great building, a great building replaces, or a great building is replaced by an even greater building. And so I just think in New York, there's this sense of perpetual motion of, 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 of things of, you know, they, they, when they built these buildings, they were of the time. That's the important thing. And so now we're building of the time. That's continually what, what, what's, you know, what happens in, in, um, in, in New York City. Um, but there's, you know, there's lessons to be, you know, learned with all of, you know, these, these buildings that are knocked down and, you know, the Petit Chateau from, you know, from my point of view, I would have loved that the state, but it was. I'm sure Julian Fellows would have liked if that was uh, around too. He could have filmed uh, his. He, he, would, he would love for that to have, yes, for that to have been there. But, you know, to call this Huntington's house, that was knocked down. That's uh, where that house used to be on Fifth Avenue is where the Tiffany flagship store is now. So one of the most, you know, iconic buildings in New York City. The what was the original uh, Waldorf Astoria was knocked down and replaced by the Empire State Building. It's not that great a building, really, but it's very, you know, uh, you know, obviously its silhouette is very famous. But when you look at it, it's 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 not got the same beauty that something like the um, the Waldorf Building or the um, uh, Chrysler Building has. Well, it's a different it's a different age, isn't it? It's it's later. It's not that Beaux Arts. It's Deco style, isn't it? So it's a different age. But let's let's get into the properties because we we've actually gone for almost a half an hour of talking. We haven't talked about the properties yet, and there's some fantastic ones. I wanted to ask you about your decision to put the Williamsburg Savings Bank, which is an opulent building, as the first property you 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 look at and and, and explore. So we so throughout the book we have twenty buildings in the book. And we uh, show them chronologically. So that's why it's first, it's just built first. And there's very few, and it kind of straddles this era. We're inside, you can very much see the Victorian kind of decoration that's in it. So it's, it's the straddling kind of styles at, at this point, because it's the very beginning. And quite honestly, the only reason it exists is because it's in Brooklyn. If it was in New York City, in Manhattan, I should say, it would have been knocked down many, many years ago. And it, that's the same thing with the Gould Memorial Library by Stanford White, which is up in the Bronx. They've survived because they don't have the same real estate uh, value as, as these um, you know, other buildings did. And so we didn't, uh, one, because it was chronologically 
two, because the architect was George Post. And so it was a way to talk about Post because um, almost none of his buildings exist anymore. They've been pretty much all knocked down. And most importantly, it's right opposite from Peter Luger's. So we were able to get a nice stake after we photographed it. I did see that in the, the photo that it said Peter Luger's. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. It's got, you know, uh, a restaurant next door now. But Sam, and then Sam Tilden's house, the, the presidential candidate, struck me as one that was uniquely ornate. It has, you know, the glass, the stained glass by John Lafarge and, and has plenty of historical importance. What did you make of that when you photographed it? So, so quite honestly, that wasn't on our original list. And we got an offer from the National Arts Club to go and photograph it. And I thought, well, you know what? Not a Beaux-Arts building. You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this. Um, but then by that time, the book has started to take on a different kind of tone in some respects. And I realized that what it actually did was it linked a lot of things together because it, it was able to talk about, you know, after the Civil War, how things are politically changing, um, they'll bring in politics. Uh, always good to mention Boss Tweed, uh, who Tilden helped bring down. And, um, but also because when he died, uh, he had no heirs and he left his, 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 his fortune and his collection to, to create what became New York Public Library. And so it led into talking about New York Public Library. Um, also, the architect of, of his house is Calvert Box, who is the principal architect of Central Park and designed the initial wing on the Metropolitan Museum. So it actually tied a lot of things um, together. So people are like, well, it's not a Beaux-Arts building. And it's like, no, but it, it helps with the overall storyline. Um, and that's one of the things we're trying to, it's not 20 individual chapters, we're telling this long arcing story over these 20 chapters. Uh, and so it kind of helped do that. Yeah, I do want to get to that, the way the style changes from the outset of the book to the end of the book. Uh, but there's a few other properties that I had, in, you know, uh, really interesting and I had some questions about. Grant's memorial. So when Grant dies, there's, um, you know, everyone's clamoring because, you know, you would know this, you know, better than anyone else. I, you know, Grant has uh, been much misaligned, you know, people. His reputation has been tarnished over the years. And I think it's starting to come back a little bit. But in, this is a generation which is right after the Civil War. And he was revered because many of these people had fought in the Civil War uh, where he commanded them. And when Grant's tomb was finished, it was the second most visited attraction in New York City, behind only the Statue of Liberty. When dignit foreign dignitaries came to New York, they went to pay their respects to Grant because that was the esteem that he was held in. Uh, he probably at that in that but one generation was thought of better than what Abraham Lincoln had been, because they real you know because Grant had, had ended the war, and when he died, uh, half uh, at his burial, half the pallbearers were Confederate generals, and half were Union generals, because even back then, people wouldn't say this now, but back then. You know, he'd been incredibly generous with his uh, surrender terms. He could have been a lot harder. He was just trying to, and this is one of the, the, the stories is, this is an era, especially the beginning of the era, they're concerned that the whole country could descend back into civil war. And so rather than the victors trying to, you know, to stick it to the losers, they've got an, a, a, an olive branch that they're trying to, you know, heal the nation together. And so, um, uh, and I know we're going off subject here, but like one of the, 
other buildings is the, the Gould Memorial Library. And around the back of it is what is called the Hall of Fame of Great Americans with all of these busts. And back when it first started in 1901, it was a bigger accolade to be inducted into the Hall of Fame than what it was to get a Nobel Prize. And the original class, the first class included, you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas, Thomas Jefferson, but it also included Lee. And people look at that now it's like, well, why did they do that? And that was why, because they were holding this olive branch out to try and, and, um, and reunite the country. Um, but um, we were talking about Grant's tomb. I don't know where we went off of that. <laughs> well, well, you know, I, I was just asking really about the Beaux-Arts style there because it's a national monument. It's, it's um, you know, you, you made the rotunda the cover of your book as well. And I was just wondering why you did that, but also how this reflects some of the other national monuments that are going to emerge in later years in Washington, D.C. So I think as soon as we took that photograph, we knew it was going to be the cover. It's um, when you're finding the cover on a book, you need to find something that one is a visually interesting image. And two, it has to work with the, the, the mechanics of a book. It can't be too busy where you've got to put the, the name of the book on the front and the name of the author. And in this case, forward by Julian Fellows, because that's what sells all the copies. That has to be readable. So you can't have an image that's too busy where you can't see that. And so we thought this was uh, a, a really good image to, 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 to use. Um, it wasn't intentional, but with Grant's team, they had a competition, a, a huge competition to, to, for the design of it. And um, it was actually never finished. A lot of the sculptural components that were supposed to go on it were never realized they ran out of money and, and weren't able to, um, to do it. And then, uh, you know, it still is the largest mausoleum in North America. And it's it's based on several precedent. It's based on uh, uh, um, uh, the Helicarnassus, and um, it's based on uh, uh, Napoleon's tomb in Paris. So you go inside, you take big oculus, you look down, and it's like in Napoleon's tomb, Grant is surrounded by the busts of all of his generals. And so they were... You know, again, it's an amalgamation. They were picking different buildings and kind of splicing them together. And again, it looks weird from the outside proportionately because there was supposed to be a lot of sculpture, which was never never went on. Hmm. Interesting. There's a, another thing that seems really prevalent in the book, besides the style, is that, my goodness, libraries are important back in the Gilded Age. Um, there's the Gould Library that you've already mentioned. There's the library at the University Club, which is the only... Uh, one of the most beautiful rooms I've ever been in, and that gets a, a one of the pullout centerfolds. Um, there's J.P. Morgan's private library, which I visited recently. There's the New York Public Library. Why are libraries such a feature of homes and, and donations by robber barons? Why are they so important at this stage in American history? I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. It's, you know, someone like, someone like J.P. Morgan, that's what he started to, co to collect in Europe. Uh, he was collecting art and antiquities and manuscripts. I think, he had, I think they have three Gutenberg Bibles. And that was just his, his, his private collection, per se. Uh, I mentioned Tilden before. He had his own private library. He had no heirs. He wanted to create a New York public library. There, there was not at that time. There was two libraries. Um, there was the Astor Library and there's the Lennox Library. And the Lennox Library really didn't operate like a library. It was just open to the wealthy friends of, of, of Lennox. 
um, to go and visit. And what happens is the thing that changes everything is when Boston Public Library was built. Uh, Charles McKim, um, the senior partner, Kim Eden White built that. And this is a time where we mentioned Chicago before, but you know, DC is obviously the, the capital of the, the political capital of America. New York has become the financial capital, but it's not been determined what's going to be the cultural capital. And there's very much this rivalry between New York, Boston, and Chicago to see who will take on that mantle. And so when you so when she um sorry, Boston built a New York Public Library, New York is like, Ugh, nah, we can't let that happen. We've got to do something. And so it came together at the perfect time. Tilden had passed away. His trustees had been talking to the two other libraries. Central Park had just been finished, which meant that the reservoir um was no longer required on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street. So the city were able to give up that piece of land to become what would, you know, for the site for New York Public Library. So a lot of things kind of came together to, to uh, uh, create that. Um, Carnegie wasn't involved. Carnegie came involved with, with the, the, the satellite branches afterwards and him having his epiphany that he wanted to give his fortune away. And I think, you know, a lot of these robber barons um, were trying to, some of the earlier robber barons, they were just unscrupulous. They didn't care what they did. Jay Gould didn't care if he crashed the economy and really didn't have much philanthropy going on. Um, it's called the Gould Memorial Library because his daughter, Helen, did that because she's trying to repair the family name. And I think that's what happens towards the end of a lot of these people's lives. You know, Carnegie, um, J.P. Morgan, Frick, they're trying to, I think, maybe repair tarnished reputations a little bit by giving back to society. And so they do that through cultural institutions, whether they be museums or art galleries or... Interesting that the one-upsmanship is, is uh, it appears to be a city thing as well, that, you know, cities are vying to keep up with the other. The other thing I was thinking is about these libraries is that it does seem like this is this is unique to the era. I mean, I was thinking about what would be in the homes of the tech bros right now, you know, the sort of second gilded age that we might may or may not be living through discuss, but what would be in their homes? What are they building? I don't think it's libraries. I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but uh, I wonder I wonder what it is. Um, all right. Well, let me move on to Richard Morris Hunt, who you've already mentioned shows up everywhere in the gilded age, not least the inspiration uh, for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He tell us about his work on that building, but also maybe his oeuvre of work and, you know, how it helped shape the period. So like I said, he's the first person to go and to call the Beaux-Arts. He's the first person to bring back Beaux-Arts architecture. And um, he, you know, builds a plethora of mansions primarily for the Vanderbilt family. None of those exist in New York City. They once lined Fifth Avenue. They've all gone. Um, he only has three structures left in New York. Um, the, the pedestal to the Statue of Liberty, uh, the Vanderbilt family mausoleum, which is on Staten Island, which is private, and the entrance to the Metropolitan Mu Museum of, of, of Art. And he's so well thought of that um, they actually build a monument memorial to him. He was referred to as the Dean of American Architecture. And his memorial is placed on Fifth Avenue between 70th and 71st Street, and it was meant to overlook 
the Lennox Library. So he, in eternity, he would be overlooking um, one of his masterpieces. And that got knocked down, replaced by the trick. And so now he's looking at somebody else's great building, uh, which kind of sucks for him. But there's two allegorical sculptures, which were done by, uh, the architecture of the memorial was done by um, uh, Bruce Price, who was the father of Emily Post, who wrote the book on etiquette. And uh, the sculptural elements on it are by Daniel Chester French. One of the figures is holding an easel. She represents art. The other one is represents architecture, and she's holding a model of the administration building from the White City. So that's well represented there. And so that's how well thought of Hunt was. There's, by the way, there was no other memorial in America, standalone memorial in America, to an architect. So. Uh, they're included in some of their buildings. Uh, Cass Gilbert is in the Woolworth building, at, you know, Hunters at the at the Breakers as well. But this is the only standalone monument. That's that's how well thought up he, he was. And in New York, people have just forgotten about him. You know, everyone remembers Stanford White. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, I don't know how much of that. Somebody smarter than me once said that, um, if Cass Gilbert had been murdered on top of the Woolworth building, would he be as famous as Stanford White? And uh, that's an interesting question to pose. Um, and so people know White, maybe not from his buildings, but just from modern day folklore. And uh, you know, one of the things I'm fond of saying is, you know, Hunt was the predominant architect of the first half of this period. The second half of this period, it was Charles McKim took over that mantle. And McKim was the one who designed Penn Station. McKim was the one who designed J.P. Morgan's, uh, you know, library and uh, University Club and many of the Columbia University the campus. So the a lot White of these, House as well, didn't McKim? Yeah, he worked, he worked, right? worked in the White House with Teddy Roosevelt. And um, but even within McKim, Mead, and White, he's the senior partner. He gets forty-two percent of the profits. I think Robert, uh, William Riverford Mead got 34% and Stanford White got whatever the math is, 20-odd percent. Uh, so he was very much the junior partner. And so I, I think quite often Stanford White, incredibly talented, but there was other people who were just as talented, if not more talented, but not as well-known in, in, in folklore as, as he was. To be honest, I mean, I think amongst architects, these names are well-known. Amongst historians, some probably less, you know, well-known, but the general public, I mean, I don't think people pay attention to a lot of these names or architects. John Russell Pope, you mentioned in your book briefly. I mean, he's a, you know, one of the biggest names in Beaux-Arts, uh, you know, uh, style. Uh, you know, he's, he's, you know, despite the fact that he's got monuments all over the National Mall, people don't, don't know him either. Um, there's something about architects working behind the scenes um, maybe not so much on these mansions at the time, but as time goes on, they become a little bit more anonymous and the structures become much more iconic. Is that fair to say? Um, I think so. I mean, you know, again, it's generational. People forget. And um, it's so so people, you know, George Post, for example, he was the only architect to be on the 400 on Mrs. Astor's list of 400. No one knows who George Post is now, unless you, you know, you, you specialize in this type of, uh, of stuff. And so typically when I lecture, and uh, when I give the lecture up at, at, at the Breakers in Newport, I, it, the architects are, are, are on the periphery. What I'm talking about is is the, the Vanderbilts, is talking about the Huntington family. It's, these are storylines that people want to hear. It, it's all, 
comes down to storytelling. It's, uh, you know, I, I was joking that, uh, you know, I don't know why it took so long to, for somebody to write a TV show like The Gilded Age, because they're all true stories. They're not fabricating any of this. It's all there. And so the major storyline in season one with, with, with the house and having Mrs. Asper come, that's a true story. It's just not Bertha Russell. It's Alva Vanderbilt. And the house is a little bit different. But other than that, it's exactly that same storyline. And in season one, uh, you know, George Russell is very much based upon um, is, uh, uh, Jay Gould. And if you've seen the trailers for season two, it seems like they've switched it. And he's now based on um, Henry Clay Frick because he's union busting and strikes and bringing in the Pinkertons. And so, um, but these are all true stories that they've just kind of spliced them all together. So it's it, it's great material to, to have as a TV show or a book. Well, actually on that, let's, let, let me ask you, how how would you tell a story about the mansions that are covered in your book? Because they do seem pretty different. Like Otto Kahn's mansion seems very different from James Burden's. So what, what makes them different? But also then also what, what binds them together beyond just the style? So I think a lot of it is the story. Like I said, the stories is the one upmanship. It's, it's entertaining. I'll come down to entertaining. This is what these homes did. They were designed for, 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 for entertaining. And so I always say that a big part of this is um, how you navigate around the building, how, how you're manipulated up, because it's the sense of being paraded up to where the ballroom is, where they're entertaining everybody. And you and there's a sense of theater, which I think is, is, is hugely important. Beyond those public spaces, they're kind of held together with scotch tape, and they always were. They were kind of showing off their wealth in the spaces that people would see. And so grand staircases, and you would look up, and there'd be an oculus and a mural up above you. And then you'd come into the ballroom, and it would just be dripping in embellishment and gilding, because that was a way of showing off, you know, one's, uh, you know, one's wealth. Um, Otto Kahn is this is kind of towards the end of the era, but he would entertain every night. Everyone had to have uh, uh, evening attire on. And they would all wait in, in his uh, gallery, which was uh, right on the corner. And that's where he kept his best artwork. And there was no chairs in there for anybody to sit down. And he would keep them waiting for a little while. And his bedroom was immediately above. And he was able to look down and decide when, it was, when he would make his uh, entrance. And there was this very, it's in the book, a very ornate stone carved spiral staircase. And that's when he would make his, his descent down. And he was you know, referred to as Opera House Khan because he pretty much single-handedly, you know, uh, uh, you know, paid for the Metropolitan Opera. But uh, but the sense of theater that that it, that is there in in these homes is 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 pretty amazing. And that's that's what they were designed for. Uh, is grand entertaining. All right. Well, let me let me ask you this then, because you mentioned early on that the book takes a chronological angle. You can see a change in style from the 1870s to the 1920s. What stands out to you as the reasons for the shift in the style of the Beaux-Arts school from, you know, that sort of, you know, Williamsburg bank to Otto Kahn's mansion? So I think there's, there's, there's several ways to answer that. I think, you know, part of this is all the technological advancements of the day. I'll give you an example. New York, New York Public Library took 16 years to build because they insisted on building it out of low-bearing masonry. 
just a few years later, they build a frick collection in two years because it's all steel frame and it's all clapped. And so all these technological advancements allowed you to, to replicate things. And so things didn't have to be carved. You could have, you know, uh, the repetition of skyscrapers and motifs reused over and over and over again because they're using a lot of uh, cast material and uh, all these technological advancements of the day. So that's kind of machinery is leading to the machine age. So that's part of it from a purely kind of practical point of view. But then, you know, and, you know, and, you know this is something you, know, you write about and is certainly the progressive era is, um, I always like to think that, you know, there's, there's a series of things happen. Uh, one is the implementation of income tax. So all of a sudden it's, it's these people can't have the lifestyles that they used that they have before they can't waste all this money on not waste but spend all this money on this grand embellishment um and you know two uh you know world war one after world war one everyone was a little bit less frivolous they didn't want to be quite so ostentatious uh tastes had, tastes had changed and um and I'm sure they have a, their eye on what's going on over in Russia and communism, and they, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, with a lot of that going on. And I think, you know, one of the big things, and I, I don't know if, if if you've spoken about this before, but is really this, the the sinking of Titanic. And it's not so much the people that died on board. You know, obviously, you know, uh, John Jacob Astor, the, the the six was, or the fourth, sorry, was right on top of that list. And both Henry Clay Frick and J.P. Morgan were meant to be on board. And J.P. Morgan was meant to be on board with his art collection, bringing it over from London. And um, and he was negotiating a deal with the U.S. government to take duties. Because, again, before uh, income tax, the main form of, 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 of money coming into the country was on import taxes. And so that's why the U.S. Custom House was such an important building in New York City, because that was the main source of revenue. And so uh, even after income tax is brought in, there's still a high import tax, which prevented more, uh, JP Morgan from bringing his art collection over and his manuscripts. So he negotiated that to be frozen while he could bring it over. Uh, and that's why he missed the Titanic. But I think the sinking of Titanic, what that does is there's just this mentality that up until that point, and I, I, I start with the writing and the introduction of my book, I start with the promontory crossing and, and the, the merging of the, the, the train tracks and how everything all of a sudden seemed possible, uh, that man could do anything they wanted. And I think Titanic was almost like the first time where it was nature pushing back and people realizing, well, I don't know, we can't do all of this. We're not, uh, we're not gods in the way that we thought we were. Um, and so I think all of those things kind of go together to kind of create a, a simpler, architecture, a less, a less ostentatious architecture. That so sense. I think I think this is wonderful because this is, you know, this is incorporating so much history into the story of material culture and the built environment. And I think that's that's a great way to sum up everything. Um, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to end on something that you ended the book on, because you said you're not a preservationist, but you do end the book with an appeal why do we need to preserve architecture like some of the houses that are under threat in New York City? And, and how can people, if we were given like a call to action, what would you tell people to do? And I appreciate you mentioning that there's, there's two buildings in the book that we, that we mentioned at the end because they've been 
know, uh, falling apart. And uh, they're both run by the state or the, or the city or the, the municipal buildings. And uh, it's not high up on the list to, to preserve historic buildings for a lot of um, these municipalities, unfortunately. Uh, the buildings that are in great condition tend to be privately run buildings. So buildings like the University Club, where there's a membership where they can do that, or, or museums, uh, where the source of income, or actually a lot of the buildings in the book are actually, you know, the Williamsburg Savings Bank, that you mentioned, the, the Cunard building, they're now event spaces uh, where they rent them out for, 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 for weddings, um, bar mitzvahs, you name it. And that that's what they've become, and they that's what has been able to keep them going. Um, but I, you know, I think it's a, I think it all comes down to, and we've, I, I spoke about this a while now, but it comes down to storytelling, and that's what I try and. I, I don't think of my book as being an architecture book. It's the architecture is the backdrop to all of these stories, and I think people become more engaged by storytelling than what they do about academic dissertations. And what we're trying to do is is get a younger, broader crowd interested in this subject matter, which I think is what has happened with the TV series. It's it's um, you know these these buildings and these stories, people can be you know they're great stories, and people don't know about a lot of these buildings. I mean, I um, it was it was funny when I was telling people I was going up to Newport to talk at the breakers. They went. So I, when I said I was going up to talk at the Breakers, everyone said, oh, you're going to Palm Beach. And I was like, no, no, not the Breakers in Palm Beach, the one, the one that counts up in Newport. And then it made me realize, well, of course I think that because this is the world in which I live. But unless you've been to Newport, you don't know this. And I took it for granted everyone knew that Stanford White was murdered on top of Madison Square Garden. And the whole generation of people who didn't. And so showing these buildings allows you to kind of tell these stories of these people. And I think that's the important thing uh, is showing great photography so people can be like wowed, but then engaging them in, in a sense of storytelling so that they can learn the history of, of you know, why they're there and why we should keep them. I think that's brilliant, Philip. And I think that just sums up your spectacular book in, in, in a great way. And I think it'll... It'll appeal certainly to the people that listen to the podcast. Hopefully it appeals to the people that don't listen to the podcast that, you know, that should, because of there, there's a ton of great stories out there. And uh, one by one, we're getting through them. So I can't thank you enough for joining the show. You're more welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.